Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hey, Joe. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access uh, not just to the front line with Joe and Joe, but to all of our station's content. And also, if you don't mind, if you would be so kind, is to help us out on social media. Joe and I can be found at The Frontline TV, The Frontline TV on YouTube. That's our primary station that we are trying to build up. So like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Rod Bennett. Now, many of you out there know who Rod Bennett is, okay? But for those of you who do not, we're going to be discussing his new book, Four More Witnesses in the Early Church. And Rod, uh, let me just grab his bio here real quick. He is the author of Four Witnesses, the Early Church in Her Own Words, widely considered to be a modern classic of Catholic apologetics, continuously in print for the last 20 years and a life-changing watershed for hundreds of spiritual inquirers. He is also, also a familiar voice on Catholic media out, outlets such as Ave Maria Radio and on popular programs like Catholic Answers Live and Marcus Grody's Journey Home. Rod's other books include The uh, Apostasy That Wasn't, The Christus Experiment, and Scripture Wars. He lives with his wife, Dorothy, under 200-year-old family home place in the Great Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee, Rod Bennett, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe, my friend. Good, good morning, Joe's. How are you? All right, doing all right. Very good. Doing Very all good. right. So with good. that, Joe, I'm, I'm going to hand here. it over. I'm going to hand it over to you. Uh, it's our custom, Rob. We always begin with a prayer because all good things start with a prayer, and this is a good thing. In the name of the Father, Son, right. Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. Amen. Rod, I, I must admit, I love you, and I'll tell you why. Not just because you're my brother in Christ, but because you don't have a cell phone and neither do I. And I love it. <laughs> I out, well, where I, out where there. Where I, I love live, it. There isn't any cell phone service. So. That is fantastic. I love it. Yeah. See, it's a message to yeah, people really, out there. You can do it. Yeah, I really do live on a, a farm that our family's been on since 1819. So, uh, and things are not a great deal different there than they were in 1819. <laughs> better off, I'll be honest so with I, you. I, I think wanna... I want to move to a farm. I, I live outside of New York City. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's great. I'm pleased to be speaking to my brothers and sisters in New York. I uh, will try to speak slowly and enunciate since my strange hillbilly accent might be a problem listen we have we have a crazy new jersey accent which is probably far more un, uh, unrecognizable to many <laughs> well, we, well we'll muddle along somehow we'll make it happen so far i'm understanding you pretty well we'll make it happen uh let's get into the book i mean but actually before we talk about this book and obviously it's four more witnesses which is a sequel to the original which was four witnesses i want a little i want to talk a little bit about uh your your journey to rome now you were a convert uh you came from the southern baptist tradition i always like to ask people that who came into the church as an adult, because I think it's very relatable. Could you talk a little bit about that journey? 
Well, it, it was a long journey. Uh, uh, when my wife and I first married, she says, we're going to become Catholic eventually. She was a Presbyterian. Uh, she could tell from my talk and the things we were discussing that I was on the, on the journey and on my way. In fact, she told her mother before we married that, that we're probably going to become Catholic, which would have been news to me because I was still in the thick of it. I was still wrestling with it all. And, uh, uh, and as a matter of fact, we took another five years to come into the church after we after she said that. So uh, I, uh, I, I wrestled. I put up a fight. And, <laughs> and as a result, I kind of learned the faith pretty well before I even uh, came in because I had really – I sometimes tell people that I uh, – know the catholic faith the way that that grant knew lee by the end of the war so uh, <laughs> and it's from 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 fighting you know from ha having a hard struggle so and yes i did start out in southern baptist type churches but i've had a bit of a journey within protestantism uh before that uh you know going from everywhere from having been myself kind of a home church non-denominational pastor to uh, being an evangelical missionary and a non denominational work and then as i began to be drawn uh romeward i spent time in uh you know my charismatic episcopal church and uh and also finally the anglican communion so uh in fact i had to apologize to my anglican pastor when i finally uh made the uh the jump made the decision to swim the tiber i apologized to him and told him I uh, have abused your hospitality. I meant it very seriously, too, that I'd spent four years in his church, and I'd been somewhat of a halfway convert because I used uh, I used it as a halfway house to Rome. I was, uh, and there'll probably be a sin of cowardice uh, to to uh, atone for on my part because of that. I uh, was ready, probably ready theologically to go four years or so before I actually did, but I was chicken, so... So I went to high church Anglicanism and spent some time there. But uh, I would have been a better uh, Anglican disciple if I had uh, been more wholehearted. But I always sort of the whole time knew that that wasn't my ultimate destination. So that's that's what I had to apologize for. But, uh, yeah, so uh, the whole process all told probably took about 10 years. It's funny. It's funny, Rod, because um... – Kicking and screaming, you know, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I, I imagine a lot of people, a lot of people out there, I mean, whether cradle Catholic and then, and then lapse for a while and then get back to the faith. Kicking and screaming is one good way to describe many journeys back to the church um, or into the church. It, it is. Because I, with Joe and I at the front line with Joe and Joe, Rod, we say all the time, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, aside from doctrinal issues and this and that and, and things like that, which I'm sure you wrestled with, um, the Catholic Church makes demands on people, on, on, the, on the individual, just as Jesus Christ made demands on the individual. And those demands are not easy to meet. They're doable with God's grace. No. But they're, they're not easy right. to meet. And I, I can say for myself, kicking and screaming is how I got back to practicing the faith because I didn't want to, you know, in my heart, I didn't want to meet those demands and, and, and decided, hey, it, that's the only way to go. It's the only way to live your life in this world and go to heaven in the next. What are your thoughts on that, Rod? Well, yeah, it, one of the things that our Lord uh, gave us a heads up on was that you following him and obeying him the, in the way that he asks us to. Uh, will sometimes cause uh, family problems. You'll have to be willing to uh, love the Lord more than your father and your mother. And uh, uh, for so many people I know, and for myself too, that was one of the problems, loyalty to your family traditions, uh, a desire not to upset or, uh, or you know, terrify your family, close family members is a big part of it. Uh, and there really are, in many cases, great, uh, uh, you know, prejudices. My, uh, you know, folks having the very strong uh, evangelical uh, atmosphere of uh, the East Tennessee to, to grow up in had all sorts of really strange prejudices and, and superstitions about Catholicism. So, mm -hmm. in fact, I think the first Roman Catholic that my dad ever actually met in person was the gangster Lucky Luciano. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How did he, he meet was, him? That's that's crazy. He was in the Navy, the U.S. Navy, in the late 50s, 
just a sailor, and they were uh, they were on liberty and walking uh, through the streets of uh, Naples, maybe. And uh, some men came along and said, "We've got a gentleman who'd like to meet you." And they were taken into a luxurious hotel and given a seat at the dinner table with Lucky Luciana, the famous <laughs> mob boss. You know, he been incredible. exiled from America at that time. He was homesick. He was lonesome for America. He he had guys out there looking for Americans, especially servicemen. So uh, they were brought to the big man's table and fed a uh, a luxurious Italian dinner and. Uh, <laughs> Little pot, sure a little pot, a little and a little wine. <laughs> isn't that isn't that a crazy story? That yes, is crazy. Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. You know, most people would say something thing, like, "Go ahead, Rob." I was going to say one of the first things my father told me when I told him I was going to become Catholic. He said, "Don't you know that uh, the mafia runs the Catholic Church?" Oh, there you go. <laughs> you know what's funny, Rod? I'm going to hand it. I'm going to hand it over to Joe. What's funny is though you because I know he wants to talk about um, the the Protestant view of of the great apostasy. But just as a as an FYI for everybody out there who's listening to us, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, uh, thirteen fifty on your AM dial, Joe will attest to this. It's not just it's not just our, our our separated brothers and sisters that look at you like you're crazy when you start practicing the faith. Cradle Catholics look at you like you're crazy when you actually start listening to the teachings of the church. Now I love them. Yeah. I mean, you know, my family's full of them, but I got to say, even, even other Catholics. Okay. Um, not in a judgy way, but other Catholics, they look at you like you're crazy. When you say you go to mass every week, you pray to rosary, you go to confession once right, a month, right. once every few weeks. It, it's interesting. It, it's interesting because you brought up, let's say how, how Protestants might look at you when you say you want to become Catholic. You got to wonder sometimes how Catholics are going to look at you when you say you're going to be right, when right. you're there's actually going to practice the faith. There's a thousand different uh, misconceptions or prejudices. Sometimes people hold on to these things much longer than they should rationally because they have a, a personal stake in in believing that the Catholic Church is wrong or that I don't have to worry myself about it or, you know, I can I'm, I can feel safe discounting it because, you know, you know, the gangs or mafia or something, anything. You might uh, come up with some old wives' tale you've heard and use that to hang your hat on for explaining to yourself why you, you don't return to the faith that you were raised in. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Superstitions are – you can be victimized by them, but you can also use them. Right. You know, you said something like, cause I, I agree with you and I've encountered that myself. Um, I used to try to witness the Catholic faith to a non-denominational Bible study. I did that for a number of years and I've seen all the misconceptions. Um, I think it was a, a Nazarene church that, uh, you know, something along those lines, the name of it, but I would always go there and speak about, you know, their, their ideas of what saints were, what Mary, her place in the church, all of which was right. inaccurate. Um, and right. I, you also said something I want to talk a little bit about. You said that family, Sometimes if you go in that direction, you will have re resistance from family. I actually heard this from a friend of mine who's Jewish, who was very familiar with the Catholic faith and was receptive to it. But what he said to me was, I could never enter the church because I would feel like I'm betraying those who died in the Holocaust. That's what he told me. Mm, and and right, I'd, right, I'd, right. I'd be interested in your comments because you come from a place where, you know, there's few and far between probably Catholic churches. I could remember being in Nashville and I only found right. one church and it, they had one mass on Sunday. That's Nashville. And, and you're right. in East Tennessee. <laughs> Talk about that the, yeah. the resistance and probably, to be honest with you, people's reaction to you. Well, it, it is true. It, it, there's, you bring up an interesting question. Uh, you know, the, the Ten Commandments enjoin us to uh, honor our fathers and mothers. And there is something honorable, something to be said about loyalty to your family traditions, including religious traditions. Unless you have a real reason for going in the direction of uh, – causing that break with your family traditions. In other words, unless you have a genuine 
fall, as it were, it's understandable that people uh, – uh, I mean, I think they're acting on a good instinct when they don't want to break their mother's heart. You know, I don't think that that's just evil, okay? But when God sends, uh, sends you questions that you hadn't had before, and he asks you – well, the passage that I quoted earlier, that in comparison with your call to obey God, your call to obey your parents has to give way. You know, almost to he uses the very strong metaphor that unless you're willing to hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. He's not asking us to literally hate our fathers and mothers, but he's using a very strong Jewish metaphor of saying, in comparison, your love for your parents would seem like hate. And it's a reminder that in those rare and tragic situations where our call to obey our families conflicts somehow with our call to obey God, then we have to obey God rather than man. But of necessity, that's going to be a tragedy, a tragedy and a tragic situation and a cross to bear. And uh, so people are not wrong to uh, hesitate before they enter into that personal, you know, personal via dolorosa. It's, it's wise and it's uh, understandable. And it's honorable that they don't, again, that you don't want to break your mother's heart. But uh, if God is calling, you have to answer wherever he's calling you to go. You cannot uh, uh, reject him in favor of your family. Hopefully with his strength and power and grace, it'll all be resolved one day and these, these uh, conflicts will, will be uh, settled. But until then, uh, those who have received a call to start investigating the answers and start trying to come closer and uh, obey the light that they're receiving, that has to come first. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not to be entered into lightly or unadvisedly, but it is uh, ultimately one of life's hard uh, choices that has to be made. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Rod Bennett is joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, talking about his new book, and uh, we're going to get into that, Four More Witnesses in the Early Church. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe Racinello. Now, obviously, reading the uh, the Early Fathers, Rod, brought you um, at least to the door of the church, and I'm a big fan of Marcus Grodi's show, The Journey Home, and that is a common theme of that show. He brings people from all walks of life. And it, it, it always seems um, when they read the early church fathers, their eyes and their mind are opened up. And that clearly rang true uh, for you. Was that why you wrote these books to reach a hand to uh, those who maybe questioned the authority and authenticity of Catholicism? Because clearly when you did read the early church fathers and you document eight of them four in your older book and now the new one, which we're talking about today, that was something that touched your heart. Absolutely. Yeah. It, I think it's the best apologetic for evangelicals. Uh, and if you watch that journey home program, you'll notice that the early fathers was a fact were a factor in almost every story that's related there. Uh, I would say, you know, 90% of the Journey Home interviews include a role for the early fathers, which is really interesting and strange on one level. I mean, these are writings that uh, books that were written after the New Testament by men with strange names that most people haven't heard of that were in the books were written, you know, 18, 1700 years ago. Uh, the idea that they, they could have that sort of power in today's world is uh a little bit of a miracle and uh you know with four witnesses i'm i'm happy to happy to have been blessed to be uh, a part of that experience for for a lot of people uh the reason the father early fathers are powerful is for evangelicals is because they're not supposed to exist the uh the the take on catholicism in evangelical churches is that uh that the early church was pure founded by the apostles, pure early Christianity is something that every evangelical strives to get back to. But the idea is supposedly, but everybody also knows that the Catholic Church was large and in charge for centuries late after that. And uh, so you have to account for that some in some way. So the way that it's normally done is a kind of a 
unconscious conspiracy theory, sometimes conscious, but uh, the idea that uh, the early church gradually went off the rails, that it, uh, or some, suddenly, some people think, uh, went off the rails, that it was allowed to, to collect barnacles, as it were. There's an old, famous old metaphor that the church, as it got older, uh, collected uh, accretions, things that did, don't really belong there, false doctrines that attached themselves to the original uh, faith of Christ, and uh, that this happened over time, uh, and the ship got dirtier and dirtier until the Reformation became necessary. So examples of things that we believed had been added by the Catholics in the Middle Ages when they didn't, they weren't responsible to anybody and they were in charge of Europe. Uh, the examples are like the devotions to Mary, uh, the idea that uh, uh, you could you need to confess to a priest, the idea that uh, uh, you know the Catholic distinctives, the the uh, transubstantiation, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, all of the, the bare things that are, the world recognizes as being Catholic distinctives, these were supposed to have been created, and I believe that they had arisen in the uh, in the Dark Ages, so to speak. You know, much much later than uh, the age of the early church. And uh, so, when you believe this, and then somebody shows you a, a prayer uh, directed for the intercession to the Blessed Virgin for her intercession, that was written in you know 200 AD or maybe a little earlier as a matter of fact then you uh <laughs> you short circuit in other words when you start reading the early fathers and people show you that you know that that they believed in uh uh you know transubstantiation they believed in purgatory they believed in devotions to mary these other things and they believed in it you know very very early during a period when, which most evangelicals would believe was still the early church, you know, the period of the catacombs and the uh, persecuted church in, in Rome, long before Constantine, you know, I, uh, I've sub subtitled this newest book, uh, More Testimony from Christians Before Constantine, because so many people believe that the, you know, the Catholic Church was sort of born or created by Constantine, and when, 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 Christianity became the official religion of Rome, that it uh, was somehow co-opted by Rome and altered and changed beyond recognition. So probably this is when all of this stuff about purgatory and confession to priests and all that came in. So if you can show them that all this stuff was present before Constantine was ever born, when the church was still persecuted, when the church was still underground, etc., you can if you can show people that this is a myth, the idea that these things came later and were a, a later accumulation, barnacles on the ship, you can disprove that very easily in black and white. Does and it strike you? One stop. Go yeah. ahead, Rod. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say it's almost a one-stop shop for apologetics, which accounts for a lot of its uh, uh, popularity because it's so easy. You can tell somebody, if you think this didn't arise until the Middle Ages, and I can show it to you in documents from 185 A.D., then that's the end of the argument. That's the end it of the discussion. It should be, Rod. Rod Bennett's <laughs> joining the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. It should be, Rod. I mean, it always strikes me. Joe Resinello tells a story about similar experiences where he tried to outline using Scripture where the Catholic Church is or a particular doctrine. And he tells a story on the show all the time how this particular gentleman God love him, but he didn't want to hear it, okay? And, right. and it reminds me, what you were just talking about, reminds me of when Jesus said, he who has eyes to see, see, he who has ears to hear, hear. Some people don't want to hear this, Rod, okay? Right. I was not a practicing Catholic my whole life. I was born Catholic, okay? And I remember distinctly about 13, 14 years ago saying to my best friend, because I was, you know, looking at Protestant churches and this and that, I said to my best friend, I will never go back to the Catholic church, ever, okay? And you want to know what? God, God showed me the right way, but it required me to look more deeply into the faith that I was born into. I didn't want to, to meet the demands that the Catholic Church and Jesus Christ himself place on the, on the human person, okay? I didn't want to hear it, okay? I wanted the nice, comfortable, you know, let's say Christianity that we have here in America. So my point in bringing this up, Rod Bennett, is that, is that people need to have eyes to see. All right. And, and, and as you said, I believe your first book was Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, I always bring up on the show, Rod, the Didache. 
if you want an early right. document, right. all right, um, you know, about yeah. all this. So that's my larger point, though, Rod, and I'm going to hand it over to Joe. People have to have eyes to see, and they'll see that some of this stuff is just not historically accurate. And, Rod, you, we talked yeah, it- Oh, please, go. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, Joe mentioned uh, the four folks in, uh, you know, uh, the four witnesses, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus of Lyon. Obviously, um, that book had had quite an impact on the Catholic world. Could you just summarize some of the, the messages that they gave that basically unequivocally pointed to Rome? Because we're going way back here. Um, you know, I believe some of these men uh, were basically one generation after the disciples and please correct me if i'm wrong yeah no no you're you're absolutely right all of them have a strong apostolic uh connection clement of rome is mentioned in the litany of the saints and and then when we pray to linus cletus and clement he's he's the clement and he was the either the third or the fourth bishop of rome the fourth pope in other words and uh he uh lived early enough that he's mentioned in the new testament he was one of paul's co-workers so i mean there's your absolutely perfect uh apostolic credentials you know i mean he's an unimpeachable witness and yet one of the great things in his letter is that he writes to settle disputes at the neighboring church of corinth which uh uh the church of corinth was a church that St. Paul himself had problems with in the New Testament with their uh, fitful adherence to Christian moral standards. And uh, so there there was more trouble again in a few decades later in Clement's day. And uh, Clement, in writing to the church at Corinth to try to settle the schism that's emerging there, says that uh, uh, I've ruled on this, and if you disobey what um, the message that I'm sending to you from God by me, then you en- engage yourself in no small danger. And uh, when I first started studying Clement, I, I, it was interesting to note that Protestant uh, uh, commentators, uh, one famous Anglican commentator said, this is the first recorded instance of papal aggression, he called it. <laughs> you know, Clement of Rome, uh, the Bishop of Rome, interfering in the affairs of another church, what really should be another bishop's uh, business, according to the theory. And yet Clement of Rome, one of the most striking things is that he undertakes, as part of the, his mission as he understands it, as the Bishop of Rome, to uh, uh, to intervene in the affairs at, Clem- at Corinth and to try, to try to settle them. And he tells them that he's ruling authoritatively. And that they need to obey what he's telling them, or they'll it'll be a sin. So that's a very, or whether you consider it papal aggression or just the the pope doing what popes are supposed to do, uh, it's certainly evidence for the idea that there was a special role for the bishop of Rome in 95 A.D. Clement wrote very very early. I mean, it, the, the first letter of Clement, the one we're talking about, uh, it may possibly be older than the Gospel of John. So uh, uh, this is a book that was written before the New Testament was even finished. So that's a very striking proof. So if you uh, you can present uh, a seeker with uh, examples that uh, the Bishop of Rome was acting like the Bishop of Rome before the last apostle even died, then you've you've made a you've made an important point. Yeah, and I've other- heard this, um, and again, you you probably know more than I that. It's like in the second century that there is a writing that talks about the mass and it's verbatim of how the mass is basically said today. And like, I mean, verbatim, the word is read and then we break the bread. Could you talk about that? Rod, let me let me Actually, cut you off. Just Rod, let me cut you off for one yeah. second because we do have to go to a break real quick. OK, Joe, I believe you're talking okay, about the Didache. Um Joe Resinello, I think you're talking about the Didache, um, the early document. So we're going to come back and have Rod talk about that a little bit. Because, again, we, we, the, the, Rod's giving, like he said, unimpeachable, okay, evidence that th- this church that we call our, our Holy Mother Church, the Catholic Church, that is the church that Jesus founded, okay? And all the early evidence, all the early writers, the four witnesses, the four more witnesses, which is Rod's Rod Bennett's new book that we're discussing, 
he outlines all this. And if you have eyes to see, you need to see. Okay. Well, um, but anyway, let's leave it there for a second. You're listening to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. As I said, being joined by Rod Bennett, we're talking about his new book Four more witnesses in the early church. Rod real quick. Where can people buy the book? The, the new book is available from Ignatius.com from our good friends at Ignatius Press. So just go to Ignatius.com and they will walk you through the process. All right. Sounds good. Uh, stick with us, everybody. we got another segment with Rod Bennett. You're listening to the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, you know about our Veritas shows, right? All five? It starts every Sunday at 5 p.m. with The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talk to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank. This is your chance to hear Bishop Frank Caggiano talk about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. That's when you can hear It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. It's a late-night show on Catholic Radio, and Liv mixes faith with humor, games, and dynamic interviews. There's a double dose of shows on Friday. First, at noon, it's Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Then, at 12.30 on Fridays, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where Peter Sonsky puts the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. We are way in the breeze with our friend Rod Bennett and Rod's new book, Four More Witnesses, okay? Four More Witnesses in the Early Church. Um, and uh, it's a fascinating conversation. You can buy the book at Ignatius Press, and we're going to talk more about it. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. Um, as we were discussing on the other side of the break, Rod, we were talking about Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus of Lyon, and that is it all documented in your book, Four Witnesses. But I mentioned something about the Mass. I believe it was written like like 120, you know, A.D., and it, it basically points directly to the Mass today. Could you talk about that? Joe mentioned it was in the Didache. Um, I, I, for some reason, I thought Justin Martyr wrote it. I could be wrong, but please well, talk about uh, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's parse that out just a little bit. So the Didache does have an account of the Eucharistic sacrifice, but uh, there's some reason to think that the Didache was written in a kind of a reserved language because they didn't want to give the churches most holy secrets out to just anybody. So the language in the Didache is, uh, you know, shows the outline of the Eucharistic sacrifice as we know it today, but not in very great detail. Justin Martyr, yes, wrote, uh, you know, in about 155 AD, so a bit later, and he uh, uh, wrote an apology to the Roman emperor to uh, to try to explain what Christians do in their gatherings, because there was a lot of misinformation about it at the time, and it was being used as a justification for persecution. So he gives an account of what happens at a Christian church service, and we find there, yes, a very, a very uh, detailed, familiar, recognizable picture of, uh, of what you and I would know as a Christian mass uh, in this letter from 155 A.D., and he uses the term Eucharist. He usually talks about the, the uh, uh, you know, really a, a great amount of information about it, how the, how the service is conducted. I wouldn't say we actually get to verbatim, though, until we get to one of the four more witnesses. If you look at the writings of Hippolytus of Rome, who wrote in the early 200s, Hippolytus actually gives us in his book, The Apostolic Traditions, he actually gives us an account of the Mass that's very recognizable, the language, the wording is preserved in our Mass to a very great extent. And uh, a lot of the language that Catholics have heard all their lives as part of what the priest says during the Mass is word for word from Hippolytus's uh, apostolic traditions. So that, uh, uh, but, but so you do get something like verbatim by that point, but it's also very early, again, you know, 80, 80 years or so before uh, before uh, Constantine was even born. So mm -hmm. 
yeah, it is a, a great piece of evidence. You know, fascinating. In, in looking at your new book, Four More Witnesses, it's something that I learned from it. Uh, Hermes wrote something called The Shepherd that was almost right. included in the Bible. Talk about that, because that was some that was eye opening. Uh, first of all, I've never heard of him before. But second of all, to, to almost be included in Scripture, he, he reminded me of like the fifth beetle rod. He just missed. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. There's a great story about the fifth beetle, by the way, by uh, Pete Best, who got bumped for uh, Ringo Starr. And, well, Hermes you know, got bumped. Being the, yes. Imagine being the guy who almost became one, who was one of the Beatles and didn't make it. And then you watch them make this gigantic fortune. They finally put three of his cuts on an album that was released in the 90s. And he made a million dollars from just those three cuts. Good Amazing. On that album. So, uh, but yes, uh, uh, Hermes was a very lowly guy. Uh, he, he wouldn't have been hurt by the fact that he, uh, he didn't make the cut, so to speak. But that is a very, very early uh, book. It, her, the, the, the Shepherd, written by Hermas, may actually be, uh, along with Clement's epistle that we mentioned earlier, uh, which was written about the same time. Clement was one, of, sorry, uh, Hermas was one of Clement's parishioners at the Church of Rome about in the 90s AD. So his book, The Shepherd, is, may actually be the oldest book, Christian book. That didn't. That doesn't actually appear in the New Testament. So yes, and it. And for a long time, the the, the churches lingered over that book because it was uh, so widely used and so revered in the early church that uh, many people thought it, it had to be scriptural. And uh, I, you know, it's too complicated an argument to go over in the few minutes we have this morning to. Uh, to explain why he didn't make the cut and the whole process of who did that and where they got their authority from. That's a whole nother can of worms, a really interesting subject, but not something we can do justice to right now. But, uh, uh, but yes, the fact that Hermes's book received such a very wide welcome in the early church, the pure early church, uh, is an indication that there can't be anything, uh, doctrinally or theologically wrong with it fact that the greatest saints at the greatest and holiest age of martyrs that the church has ever known embraced that book with such a fervor is an indication that it that it can't possibly have been heretical or dangerous in any way and yet it contains things that our evangelical brethren would not would not like to find there uh it definitely uh rejects the Calvinist dogma of, of eternal security, which so many evangelicals hold to, the, the idea that once saved, always saved. Hermas writes a warning. His book really is a, a series of prophetic dreams he received to warning about the onset of the great Roman persecution. He, he sees the persecution about to begin in a vision of a big snarling dragon that's headed his way and uh, correctly interprets it as a time of persecution ahead. And sure enough, that was the beginning of the of the, the great uh, Roman persecutions that lasted 165 years. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that's one of the power part of the power of Hermes's book is that uh, it contains Catholic ideas, which our evangelical and other Christian brethren need to take more seriously, because they find them in a book like this so early and so venerated and so uh, uh, you know associated with the apostles. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's one of the reasons he's such an important witness. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. We have Rod Bennett, and we're talking about four more witnesses to the early church. That's Rod's new book that's available on Ignatius Press. Let's, uh, let's talk, Rod, a little bit about a, a very specific topic, okay? In Four More Witnesses, you go into some detail um, about, uh, again, these four men, Hermas, Clement, Hippolytus, and Origen, and what they had to say about the necessity of baptism. Now, to me, Rod, I I'm sorry. I, I listen. I try to be kind and open-minded when I listen to evangelicals and, and people like that. There are some that don't even believe in, like, like like baptism like or or they have a problem with the catholic teaching on baptism and what the effects of baptism are can you elaborate on what these four men had to say about baptism right yeah well uh you know it, it it's it's very interesting all of that 
anti. It's it's interesting that a denomination called the Baptists really has a very role, a low role for baptism in their <laughs> in their uh, uh, theology. Their very name is em, emphasizes baptism, while they don't. You know, they say you should go ahead and get baptized, but they don't assign any spiritual significance to it other than just obedience. And uh, so it's an it's an irony. But if you go to the uh, uh, writings of the early fathers, not just the four more witnesses, but the it's present in the original four and all the rest of it. In fact, one of the most striking things about encountering the early fathers is how universal belief is in baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration meaning baptism awakens the soul, makes a person into a Christian, uh, washes away original sin, etc., uh, that is simply the unquestioned the teaching of the early church. Uh, you can find other aspects of church teaching about which there's legitimate uh, debate in the early church. Not everybody before the great councils had exactly the correct understanding of the Trinity or, or of the Lord's Supper or some of these other things. Some of these other aspects of it had, uh, had to be thought out and parsed out a little bit. But baptism, baptismal regeneration, the idea that baptism is the doorway into the church, into the life of a Christian, is absolutely unambiguous in the writings of the early fathers, which, by the way, there are thousands and thousands of pages. So you can find uh, 200 different writers who lived before Constantine was ever born, and you find absolute uh, unanimity is the word on whether baptism now saves you or not. There's no question that it does in their minds. And then again, the church's old, oldest, purest, holiest age, the age of, age of martyrs, people who had, many of them had been uh, converted by the apostles. If you find that these people teach that baptism now saves you, then that counts, in, at least it counted in my mind, a lot more than what John Calvin had to say about it 1,500 years later. And uh, no, no, not trying to be offensive to people who revere Calvin, but uh, just simply, you've got you're much closer to the to the headwaters, as it were, when you're consulting uh, people like uh, Clement or uh, or Hermas or you know Irenaeus or some of these others. And the the, the teachings on the topic are just strikingly uh, explicit and strikingly unambiguous, and nobody even questions it. It's, it's 300 years before you even have some heretic coming along and saying that baptism is only symbolic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, about, it's only during the age of Constantine when you find some tiny little splinter group arguing for a purely symbolic baptism, as evangelicals believe in. And that's an extremely significant fact. Uh, I don't say it or bring it up to make anybody feel stupid or look stupid. That's not what it's about. It's just simply a fact that you need to think about, that you that you need to process, and uh, and and give some attention to. And uh, you know, if the early church uh, went astray on baptism, then she went astray while the apostles were still living, and while they were still around to correct these men if they were wrong. And we don't find that. So uh, uh, that that's that's something to. Uh, Put into your pipe and smoke, as the old. <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, I, I find it interesting. Was politically I find it so interesting. You say it's like so clear, yet people still choose to ignore it. I mean, it's so clear, and I, you know, it's it's funny how the human mind can rationalize things, and it comes down, in my view, to authority. My father always right. used to say when I was a young boy, "You listen to the Pope." It's about obedience. You see, being a disciple of Christ is means you're a follower. You follow Christ to freedom. You follow Christ to joy, yeah. to peace, and ultimately to heaven. But you're saying something, it's so clear, and there will be a lot of people who they'll argue with you. They'll argue with you. Yeah. Well, it, okay, I'd like to like to make a couple – you're right. I'd like to add a couple of caveats, though, so in case any evangelical listeners don't misunderstand. Uh, it isn't true that all evangelicals deny baptismal regeneration. The, the, the Wesleyan Pentecostal cares very large 
Wesleyan Pentecostal charismatic tradition happily has kept to the original teaching on this part. And in, in no small part due to Wesley himself, who was an avid uh, student of the church fathers. So thanks be to God. But so I, not all of our evangelical listeners would have a problem with this or be surprised to find it there. It's more of the people in, people in the Calvinist school, which included my own Southern Baptist churches. So, uh, and I'll say this too. I think the great the Scottish uh, 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 inspiration to C.S. Lewis, George MacDonald, said uh, we shouldn't be hard on those who believe less than we do. But what you do, uh, belief, belief is grace. God has to send the opening of the eyes and the opening of the ears. It's not something we're entirely in charge of. So you, there's grace that goes ahead of our conscious thoughts and, and makes us open to to things. Also, I'd want to say, too, that, that uh, you know, when people have simply decided not to go there in the modern parlance, you know, if you're not just not willing to go there, then you're not going to be able to learn anything on that particular topic. And as we started at the beginning of the talk today, uh, people have good, many of them have weighty reasons for not being willing to go there. You know, if, it, if if somebody believes that that this would break their mother's heart, that's that's a weighty reason. It's not to be uh, dismissed or sniffed at, okay? But for people who really do uh, believe themselves and consider themselves to be disciples of Christ, discipleship is about learning. And sometimes he has, like as with the apostles, he has to turn to, uh, teach you difficult things that you're not ready to hear yet. So. My advice here is I can be sympathetic. I, I was there. I've been there and done that. It wasn't because I was a stiff-necked jerk, although probably I was in some areas. <laughs> but uh, I will say this. If God is calling – well, if God was calling you to listen to this program, there must be something going on. You know, If you're totally tuned out and unwilling to go there, you wouldn't have listened this far. So uh, – uh, you know, if, if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Uh, uh, you know, if you, if, if you heard today somebody say that baptismal regeneration was the universal teaching of the early church for 300 years, then you've acquired a new responsibility. You've acquired the responsibility of, of dealing with that somehow, of going to it and verifying the fact and then factoring it into your beliefs in some way. I personally believe there's no way to gainsay this other than resort to some kind of a conspiracy theory, which God knows there's an awful lot of going around these days. Sure. But uh, uh, I encourage people not to do that. In other words, these writings have not been falsified. The Vatican has not hidden the secret evangelical writings of, of uh, uh, you know, St. Joe, the, the Presbyterian from 100 AD. That's that's all conspiracy stuff. That's not That's real. not in the, Rod, that's not in the vault yeah. underneath the Vatican, uh, underneath St. <laughs> Peter's Basilica. There's not, they don't have it all stored away in the vault there. Um, again, again, conspir conspiracy theory is the, is the magic bullet for believing whatever you want to believe. But yeah, yeah. for those of us who, who really are trying to find out what the actual truth is and what God is trying to say to us, then you can't, you can't resort to that you need to go back look at the records find read them yourself find out whether what i've said is true or isn't true and uh, if you find that it is true that the early church believed in baptismal regeneration you need to deal with that in some sort of way if that i'm not saying that this, this i'm not saying this as a commercial for roman catholicism you, you there are other churches that teach this and if all it means right now is you stop being a presbyterian and become a methodist then you've still made progress <laughs> on this issue but right. yes absolutely the eastern orthodox churches the anglican churches they teach the original catholic faith on this point so but it is something for evangelicals people who started out in the in the evangelical traditions of calvinism as i did they have to you, you have to take this account into an account somehow that the early church taught baptismal regeneration well, one thing, Rod, one thing that I got to say that bothers me a little bit, okay? And I, and believe me, I, 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 I try, I, I give them my best to try to be, you know, understanding and all that, because I know that a lot of people showed me a lot of understanding in my journey back to the faith. But I don't like, well, I, 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 and I must say, is when you hear things like, um, 
like uh, man-made traditions, the, the accusation against the church, man-made traditions. No, those are just doctrines of men. They could be changed. But then the same people don't apply the same standard to John Calvin. In other words, like, why is it that you're saying that I'm listening to, I'm listening to, let's say, the church, even if I haven't read the early church fathers, okay? Uh, but I'm listening to the church, and I do have an, uh, an historical understanding of how these things developed, okay? Um, then I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm at least exploring it, all right? But to just shut it down by saying, well, those are just the, tradition, uh, the traditions of men. All we need is what's in the Bible. Okay, but tulip is not in the Bible either. You know, so that's right. something that John Calvin co concocted. Okay. And the same standard again is not applied to him as is applied to the Catholic church. And, and that gets, I'm not going to lie to you, Rod, that gets a little frustrating, at least if you're going to be critical. Okay. Um, at least be fair. And a lot of times you find a lot of unfairness. Um, and what, what, what do you think about that? Well, I, uh, I, I think that people who aren't willing to go there, uh, you know, get testy about it sometimes and that's that's what you're that's what you're hearing you know well you see you see you see a lot of that rod you see especially yeah, especially yeah. in especially in america you see a lot of that we want to get to a couple more questions rod we probably have about another nine or ten minutes joe restinello where do you want to go yeah talk a little bit about because you mentioned something eternal security in the book and you also uh stress that you know, the, the early church fathers spoke about confessing to church elders. I think that particularly is a stumbling block for people. Could you kind of elaborate on it? Well, I'll just say that all that, that a role for uh, the church in dispensing uh, restoration is also very clearly present in the writings of the early fathers. Uh, it is true that you know little confessional boxes with red lights on the door and to let you know when it's free to come you're free to come in and all the rest of it there are a lot of traditions and practices concerning how confession was done which don't date to the early church uh it, there's good reason to think that uh you know I'm, even evangelicals will agree that you know confess your sins to each other in church is a, is in the scriptures you know but how that was done and what the role what role the clergy had in it and how formal or sacramental that confession is were matters that were up, up for debate. But uh, I think you do see that the church uh, did practice. And if you look at the early writings, you see that the church did practice a kind of a general confession, similar to what we do at the beginning of a mass, you know, a, a public general confession that doesn't involve actually citing your sins in front of uh, uh, in front of the whole congregation. But because of uh, uh, the difficulties involved in public disclosure of things like that, the church gradually moved to uh, what, what we think of, what we call auricular confession, confession out loud to a priest uh, in private. What is, is a later development. The, uh, uh, the, you know, the right to do it is there in Christ's own word to the apostles, you know, uh, receive, he breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he says after that is, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. And we're told explicitly that he said that to the 11 apostles. Okay. So uh, they received a gift of, of hearing confessions and at the end of the confession, deciding whether to dispense absolution or not. That's right in the in the initiation of the sacrament that's recorded in the Gospels. But uh, uh, the fact that it develops and takes on particular forms with the wisdom that the church gained through practice about how it should be managed in a day-to-day -day, uh, way is something that doesn't happen instantaneously, unlike baptismal regeneration. Baptism is pretty much unchanged since day one, even in its visible exterior. Uh, but in this case, we do need to be a little careful and not suggest that that uh, confession, as it as it was known in the in the in the old churches in the 1950s, it would would not have been found in the early church. But the essence of it is there. The basic idea behind it is there. The idea that the that the apostolic ministers of the church have a role in forgiving or retaining sins for uh, their congregants is. Uh, is very much there at the beginning. So, and th this is an example of something which absolutely is in the writings of the early fathers. But you need to be walked through it a little bit so as not to uh, 
to get misconceptions. It's not quite as obvious and transparent as the baptism issue. You know, what I find interesting is like, as a Catholic, because a lot of Catholics don't go to confession, and some people will rationalize it. You're like talking to a psychiatrist, or I can tell my sins to God directly, or I could tell my sins like in the Protestant tradition to say someone, you know, to each other. But there is a difference. I'm a big confession guy. I try to go at the minimum once a month. Um, when you confess your sins, they are truly left there in the box. And you can't right. tell me otherwise. It's like telling someone who ate a big meal. No, you're not hungry. No, no, I was hungry. Now I'm full. Well, I went to confession. They're done. You see, that's not psychological. That's real. Yeah, there's a verifiable aspect of it. Yeah. To personally, and this is what I, I always say to people. Confession is an encounter with the Lord. It's life changing. Joe, let me just cut off real quick because Rod, I tell you, you got to go out and buy this book. Four more witnesses to the early church. Rod Bennett joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. Rod, sorry to rush it along. We got about five minutes left. I'd love to know for our listeners' benefit, what did the early church fathers uh, have to say about Mary and her and her role in salvation history? One one of the most interesting stories about that happens in the days of Origen. He's the he is the eighth witness, if you read both books. Origen lived uh, most of his career in the middle, the middle third century, meaning the 30s, 40s, 50s AD, 250s. I'm sorry, 240s, 230s, 240s, 250s AD. So still, still years before Constantine. And Origen is one of our great witnesses to the very high role that was paid to the Blessed Virgin in the uh, in the early church. Here we talked about verifiable stuff, stuff that you can that that you don't have to. It doesn't take a genius. Show me something that's short and verifiable. Here's a good uh, a good really good example of this. The uh, uh, there's a prayer that dates from Origen's day, where there's an actual. Uh, you know, surviving prayer. It's in a library in uh, uh, in England, the, the John Rylands University Library in Manchester, England. They own a piece of papyrus that dates from Origins Day, uh, 250, the, right around the year 250. And on that parchment uh, are words from an ancient petition to the Blessed Virgin Mary that probably was used in church services. Let me quote it. Under your mercy, we take refuge, O Mother of God. Do not reject our supplications in necessity, but deliver us from danger, only pure, only blessed one. Now, that, <laughs> that would have been astounding to me as a, an evangelical. Here, the, the stuff like that, mother of God, prayers to Mary for deliverance, uh, a reference to her immaculate conception, her, her as the only pure, only blessed purely human person that uh, would have you know i believe that those things arose in the dark ages or the middle ages so this stuff's a thousand years out of time as far as my christian worldview is concerned uh, and here it is you can go to this library you can look at the parchment a prayer to the mother of god for deliverance with a uh, with an oblique reference to her immaculate conception the, uh, you can find it there dating from 250 A.D., from before Constantine was born. So uh, uh, it's there. It's in black and white. And, uh, uh, you, you know, you may still not believe it. I'm not saying you have to believe it because it's there and it's old, but you at least have to stop believing a false theory that the Catholic Church added all these things much later. Because as soon as you see that parchment, you've learned different. And you have a new responsibility, as I talked about earlier. So uh, devotions to the Blessed Virgin Mary have been proved by archaeological evidence to have existed long before the Roman, Roman Empire got involved. And, you know, maybe, the, maybe Origen, maybe the other writers who expressed these kinds of beliefs in the early centuries were wrong. That's a separate subject for you to, to look in and investigate yourself. But uh, uh, the fact that they exist didn't exist back then, that it's a much later corruption, a tradition of men, is something you can't go on believing once you visited the uh, John Ryland's library.
Joe Resinello, we have about a minute left. What do you have for Rod? Rod, I always like to get the perspective of converts because you bring, I, I think, an insight into the church that someone who was born a Catholic like myself does not possess. Lately, there's a lot of talk in Catholic circles like, I'm an Orthodox Catholic, I'm a progressive Catholic. It, those are inaccurate phrases, if you ask me. What? And frankly, straight up and down, whether you ask me or not, they're inaccurate. What can we do as laity to bring unity to our church? Rod, we only have about 30 well, I, seconds, Rod. Yeah, I don't think I can do uh, justice to it in 30 seconds. I will say <laughs> that those terms, conservative or progressive Catholics, so those are political terms. They don't have any business in the faith. Amen, Inside brother. the faith, we talk in, we talk in terms of Catholics and Orthodox as being marks of the church. Uh, it is true that sometimes people want to add to the list of orthodoxy things that are really just their opinions. That does happen sometimes. People try to impose as articles of the faith things that are their deductions, and etc. On the other end, some people who want to emphasize the Catholic side of things, the, the Catholic word Catholic meaning universal, a welcome home for everyone. All are welcome, as the, uh, as the song goes. Those people will sometimes widen the net too far. They'll, they'll want, they want to include people who are not penitent and not who have unbelief. And uh, that's not how wide the net goes. Rod, but, we but have yeah, to leave it there. Believe. Yeah. Yeah, we ha I'm sorry, Rod. Uh, you know how it is that's on okay. radio. We do have to leave it there, like Rod's book. Talk for hours. Uh, no, absolutely. And we're going to have you back, brother. Uh, Rod's book, Rod Bennett, Four More Witnesses to the Early Church. You could get that at Ignatius Press. We want to thank you, Rod Bennett, for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. And thank you all out there for listening to us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area, 1350 on your AM dial. Make sure you download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation. And that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.